Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So if you have been around any social media this week, there has been a a pretty significant trend where people have been uh, posting photos of themselves side by side uh, between uh, what was 10 years ago and, and what was today. And so as you see a number of people, it's been kind of funny to look and see what the uh, pictures look like 10 years ago. Well, it just so happens um, that somebody in this room who's known me for uh, two of those decades uh, in the past few weeks has posted pictures of me 20 years ago. And they are uh, exceedingly centered right square in the middle of the late 90s. I mean, they are, they have all of the late 90s goodness. And as, as these pictures have been posted, I've kind of just a little bit cringed, but then let's be honest, given myself a, a little bit of a pass because it was the 90s. Okay. Everybody was doing it. Nobody can get too mad about the decade where they were teenagers. Look, baby boomers, we've all seen the pictures of the 60s. You were no better. Okay. Just wait till our kids see how ridiculous they look 20 years from now. Uh, But as I saw it, one of the things that I noticed is in the picture, um, all of the kids and all of the people around me were all wearing the got to have go to accessory of 90s Christian kids. This bracelet was everywhere. This bracelet could be found in gas stations. Wherever you went, you could find yourself a nice, fresh, What would Jesus do bracelet in whatever color you could imagine? In so many ways, the the what would Jesus do bracelet has that sort of arc of every cultural phenomenon, right? At first, it's like, oh, that's cool. Where do I get one? How do I get my hands on one? I want one of those. And then after a while, it's like, Everybody has one. They're everywhere. And then even before the days of think pieces, people start to go, oh, those aren't that great. I can remember in the 90s, people, what would Jesus do? He would walk on water and turn water into wine. You're going to do that, right? And people would sort of begin to mock them, begin to say, oh, that's not that great, whatever. It's not that cool anymore. And then they are relegated to the, the level of nostalgia where now 20 years ago, we think about these bracelets that we all wore and we kind of snicker, we chuckle and we go, oh, those were the days. But what, what, the, what would Jesus do bracelets did that I think is interesting is that they captured people's imagination. Because if you let yourself think about that question, what would Jesus do? It's a question that requires that you use your imagination, that you say, huh. If he was in the scenario, what would he? And you have to, you have to begin to think, what would that actually be like? Because so much of our lives are actually lived at the level of imagination. What, what captures your imagination? What, what do you daydream about? Do, do you, when you see the Powerball numbers at the gas station, do you kind of daydream about like six hundred and eighty-five million dollars? I. I wonder what I would do with $685 million. Or do you kind of look around? We were at a wedding yesterday and I was thinking about the day when maybe one day my kids get married. And you kind of wonder what in the world is that going to be like? 
or maybe your daydreams are, are different about maybe the, what would your life be like without that one tragic event? What would your life be like if you had made a different decision at one point in time? Those are all questions that at the end of the day, inspire and are born in our imagination. But if we're honest, our imagination is sometimes not quite as nice as that, is it? When you think about the seven deadly sins, how many of the seven deadly sins have to do with our imagination? Lust, for sure. Greed, what would it be like? What, what, what can I do to get that stuff that I want? Envy, I wish I was more like this. I wish this person would love me. I wish I was more like... Pride. How many of us, when we're left to ourselves, and we sort of daydream, daydream about how great we are? Or maybe we daydream about, you know, if I could redo this argument, Oh, uh, I would have said, th I would have said this and I would have really got them. You know, they would have never been able to have, I would have really, oh, if I would have just, you see, oftentimes our imaginations are not filled with sort of the creative questions like what would Jesus do, but rather are filled with things like envy and lust and greed and pride. But what would it look like? What would it look like for you and for me if our imaginations were transformed? If our daydreams were transformed into something different? Because when we think about that, when we begin to imagine that, we start to see something unique come into view. What is it that stands in our way? What's that roadblock? Well, Peter, as we've been looking through this book, has been talking about how great the salvation and the ransom and the redemption that Jesus provides is. He has been talking about how wonderful it is. And Peter is not a lot like Paul. We studied 1 Corinthians uh, about a year ago here at City Church, and, and Paul is very logical. He's that friend who always has sort of the checklist and always goes in the right order, right? That, that this leads to that, which leads to this, which leads to that. It's, it's very particular to where Peter is. Peter is your friend who always goes on rabbit trails in conversations. That's always got a story that, oh, this reminds me of that one time. Oh, that this is like, and as we go through this book of first Peter, what's interesting is Peter does not sort of lay things out in a very simple, logical way like Paul, but rather he sort of lays out and says, listen, what we have in Jesus is beautiful. What we have in Jesus is incredible. And you know what? It reminds me of this and it should change us in this way. And you know what? Oh, and, and it also is this. But as we look at the implications that Peter is showing us this morning, the thing that's going to tie them all together is the way that they work on the level of our desire. Or in other words, the way that they work on the level of our imagination. So what I'd like to do is have you all stand together as we read first Peter. And we're going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter of chapter one. So let's stand together. Peter says this, 
as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were not ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory. Like the flowers of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you city church. This is the word of God written nearly 2000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. As we think about our imaginations and as we reflect on this text, what I want us to see is the way that our familiarity with God, our familiarity with Jesus and the things of God becomes an excuse for us to do whatever we want and for us to have dull spiritual imaginations. You see, for many of us, We have this idea and we have rightfully have this idea that God is very near to us, that God is here with us. And that is absolutely true, but it also must be balanced with the fact that God is far away, that on the one hand, God loves us and is near to us. But on the other hand, he is holy. So as we sort of think about that dynamic, what happens to most of us is we like to think about the nearness of God and we don't so much like to think about the holiness of God. That's, that's the otherness of God. That's the distance of God. That's the God that is far away. And I don't always like to think about that, but I do like to think about the Jesus loves me part. And when Peter begins to talk about this, he starts by telling us that we need to be holy. So how's that working out for you, City Church? If I told you this week, you had a homework assignment, go be holy. How many of you would pass that test? Right? Not me. I would fail. Here we are. I think one of the problems with the idea that we have of holiness is that we have a very negative view of holy. Think of, think of someone in your life that you think of as holy, whether that's, whether that's a, a holy man, somebody who is a, a religious leader or somebody who you just know to be incredibly holy. When we think about somebody who is like that, what is the way that we describe them in our mind? We often describe, well, this person is holy because they don't do this. 
right? I was raised in a church that said, you don't, you don't drink, you don't chew, you don't run with girls who do, right? That sort of, that idea that holiness is these things that you don't do. Ah, this person's very holy. Have you seen their Netflix account? It's all cooking shows and they don't even watch Gordon Ramsay because Gordon Ramsay has a potty mouth, right? They're holy because of their Netflix account, right? Or they're holy, right? Because of the sins that they avoid. That's a very negative view of holiness. That's a very, a view of holiness that is all about competition, because if, if holiness is based on the number of sins you can avoid, guess what you're constantly doing? <laughs> avoided more sins than that person. Holier than them. Ah, better than them. That idea of holiness promotes self-righteousness. It promotes the idea that if I, ju- if I do my CBR journal more than everybody else in my small group, guess who wins small group? Me. I do. Because I did my C- I even I even did the Saturday CBR from the Psalms. Look at me. I got it together. I'm doing all the right things. And not only that, guess what? Since I'm holier than that person... Guess who God is going to give all the nice things to? Me. I did more than the other people. And we, and we see this. Look, if you, look, if you hear this and go, yeah, no, Justin, I don't, I don't do that. What happens when somebody who you think is less holy than you has something good happen to them? Do you have a little bit of a, uh, wait a minute, Jesus, why are good things happening to that bad person when you've got a good person right here? See, that's the way our hearts normally go. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to say, first of all, I'm sorry, because this idea of negative holiness is has been something that Christians have used against people who are not Christians. It is a way that we have been incredibly arrogant and incredibly divisive towards other people. And so I say on behalf of all of us, I'm sorry. But I also want to point out something. That this is this idea of I am, I am better because of the things that I avoid is not just a Christian problem. You see, in our culture, we are consumed with virtue signaling and with being outraged at all of the right things. This is true of Christians. This is true of non-Christians. Our culture has, has developed in such a way that we are in a moment right now where we are very excited to read the clickbait headlines that tell us who the bad people are. Would you, would you look at these college students and what they did at the march? You won't believe the video. Click here. You won't believe what such and such church is doing. Click here to find out all the grisly details. We love it when other people aren't doing as well as us. We love it when we can be outraged at those people out there who are not as good as me and my friends. 
this negative view of holiness creates self-righteousness. And it does so to those of us who are Christians and those of us who aren't. Christians just cloak it in the language of Jesus. But what I want to do is show you how Peter is actually painting a different picture of holiness than we're used to. It's not just, here's a list of things not to do and maybe an add-on list of things that you should do. No, Peter roots our holiness in the character of God. He says, you should be holy because God is holy. What, What he's telling us is that holiness is the creative imitation of the character of God. So I look at who God says he is. I look at the way that God loves other people. I look at the stories in the Bible of the way that God works. And I creatively say, how am I going to do those same things? So it's not a, a way of negation. It's not the via negativa, but rather it's us going, how can I creatively do the things that God does? How can I creatively act more like Jesus in this scenario? And you see, that kind of holiness looks a lot different, doesn't it? The kind of holiness that is saying, I am going to discover who God is. I'm going to search and figure out. I'm going to, I'm going to learn more and more each week, each day about who God is. And I'm going to try to creatively do the kind of things God does in my family. I'm going to try to creatively do the things that God does in my life at work, at the gym. You see, that begins to give us a new view. But one of the things that that requires is that we never think of ourselves as too familiar with God. Because if I already know all the stuff about God, I don't have to be creative about the way that I learn to imitate him. Because I already know all the things. I can sit back. I know all the Jesus things. I'll just do this. And Peter says, no, no, you don't. You're in need of learning more. You need to learn more about who God is, what his holiness looks like, and then begin to creatively work that out in your life. But Peter moves from just telling us to be holy to telling us that that one of the reasons is because we're going to be judged by God. Now, this is something that we don't like to talk about very much, right? Yay, come to City Church, week three at the theater. Let's talk about God's holiness and the judgment of God. Here we are, right? One of the things that we do at City Church is we typically preach through books of the Bible. And one of the things that that does is means that when Peter starts talking about holiness and judgment, we're here for it. We don't like to talk about the judgment of God. And not only that, one of the reasons we don't like to talk about the judgment of God is because we have a slogan. I've mentioned it already once this morning. You've heard it several times. And if you didn't see it walking in, may I offer you the number of a good eye doctor? Because it's on like all of our stuff. It says broken, messed up, accepted, forgiven. And oftentimes what we do is we use that idea. We use the idea that we are already accepted by God. We say, okay, that means that there's no judgment for me. I'm good to go. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm all fine. Everything is fine. Situation normal. What we do is we use our familiarity with the gospel to keep us from thinking about God. 
we use our familiarity with that phrase to go, okay, so I don't actually have to think very hard about my actions because my actions don't matter. I do this. I don't like to talk about the judgment of God. And some of that comes from uh, the, the faith tradition I was raised in. Uh, the, way, the way that I was raised, the, the church that I attended growing up, I thought that I was, I was a two-strike felon who was just waiting for his parole officer to find out about any of the number of things that I'd done wrong so I could be punished. I assumed that at any moment, God was going to smite me. And so I lived with this, to borrow from the Greeks, the the sword of Damocles hanging by a hair over my thread, just waiting for it to fall on me. I was constantly worried because I was constantly guilty. And then when I found the good news that Jesus loves me, that Jesus forgives me, that Jesus has taken away my guilt, my reaction was to say, okay, good. Now I never, ever, ever have to think about my actions again because it's taken care of. I don't have to worry. Good. Done. That's, that part is gone. But the reason we do this, the reason why we use, even as Christians, use the gospel to keep us farther away from the judgment of God is because it makes us feel better about myself. If I can use Jesus language to excuse my sin, guess who doesn't have any guilt or shame for their sin? Me nailed it. I get, I get all of those benefits. But when we do this, we're missing out on what Peter is showing us. You see, Jesus took our judgment for us. The verdict is in, you are not guilty. And then Jesus turns around and gives us new life. And when Peter is talking about the judgment here, he's talking about the question of what are you going to do with the new life that Jesus has given you? What are you going to do with it? You know, I read a story uh, this week about the fact that a few years ago, uh, the Newark City Schools, um, that's Newark, not New York. I know that Florida accents are hard to distinguish those two things. Uh, But the Newark, New Jersey City Schools were absolutely failing. They were like real, real bad. And so um, Mark Zuckerberg decides to call this enormous press conference and say, hey, I'm like 19 years old and richer than everybody. uh, So here's what I'm going to do. Here's a hundred million dollar check right now for the Newark City Schools. And I will match up to a hundred thousand dollars of donations and new tax funds over the next 10 years. And so he gives them all of this money and guess how much changed in the school system marginally nothing we listen to that and go how can how can somebody give 300 million dollars to even a large school district like the city of Newark, and then nothing essentially changes in any of their schools, we look at that and go, something is wrong with that picture. How can we, who have been given such great freedom and the love of Jesus, the the redemption, the, the life of the resurrection, all of the things that we as Christians have in Jesus... And then what do we do with them? A 
we like Newark? And they just kind of float away into the ether. See, the judgment for us is not something that is used as a threat. The judgment that Peter's talking about here is not a threat, but it is a reminder for us to live soberly, to think about how great the gift of our salvation is. And as we reflect on how great, how beautiful, how wonderful the freedom of forgiveness is, being freed from guilt and shame, how great that is, it should absolutely change us. So let's not squander that. Let's be thoughtful by that. And so Peter reminds us that God is holy. So, so let's be holy. Let's creatively imagine what it would be like to follow him. Let's, let's remember that what he has given us is beautiful and, and is great. And his mercy is incredible. So let's live in light of that. And then he finally says that because as you are doing this, because of this, you should love one another with a sincere love. You see, holiness is always outward facing. Not only do we mistake holiness by making it a negative thing, what I avoid, but we also, when we, when we turn it into a competition, we make it about us. My holiness is for me. I'm going to be a better Christian for me. I'm going to be a better Christian so that I'm a better Christian. And what Peter tells us is no, when we grow as Christians, true Christian maturity is always outward facing. It always leads to loving others, which means it's never self focused. You see, our Christian growth is not to grow our own righteousness. Our Christian growth is to grow our capacity to love others. How do we do that? By creatively emulating who God is. Now, most of us, even if we use this new definition of being holy, this positive definition would admit pretty quickly and pretty easily that that's not what we do. That's not how we act. But we also see in this text another picture of the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. You see, before the foundation of the world, Jesus chose in all of his beauty and creativity to set his love and affection on you. And then he came to the earth and he was the sacrifice for your guilt, for your shame. And then he gives you new life through union to his resurrection. You see, the picture that we are given of Jesus in this text is the picture that we're supposed to emulate. It's a picture of self-sacrifice. It's a picture of creating new life and new opportunity for others. It's a picture of love that is absolutely overflowing in the way that it is spreading outwards towards others. That's the kind of love you have been shown by Jesus. That's the kind of thing that you are to creatively emulate in your families. That's the sort of love that you're to creatively emulate at your workplace. Wherever you go to have fun with your friends, that's the sort of thing that we show. And so as we continue to learn what this is, what happens is we begin to imagine new ways to love others. Bonus points. Our second phrase here at city church is waging peace. 
And, and one of the reasons we use that phrase is because it's this idea of how are we going to creatively find ways to be peacemakers? That is creatively emulating what God is. We're going to learn and figure out new ways to do that. We're going to repent and turn to Jesus and say, I need you more whenever we become self-righteousness, whenever we ignore his judgment. But City Church, here's the good news. If you're a Christian, this process may be hard and this process may be slow, but guess what? You're in it. And it's not going to stop. And he's going to keep chipping away. You know, there's a, I think it was um, Michelangelo who was asked as he sculpted things that how do you, how do you imagine sculpting all of these things? How do you, the, the statue of David, how did you do that? And he said, well, all I did was chip away the things that weren't David, right? Which is a wildly simplistic answer, right? Like, no, you didn't. You're an incredible artist. You didn't just chip away the things that aren't David. You, whatever artist going to art, right? But so much so, this is what God is doing in us, City Church. He's chipping away the things that are not what he made you to be. And he's doing that through his word, which doesn't fail. The hope that we have is based on the fact that his word is never going to fail and is always going to be in the process of making us new, of drawing us to him and making us, dare I say, more and more holy. Let's pray.